Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Trigger warning. This podcast involves discussions of child sexual abuse and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. Let's play a game. It's called, How Many Men Can We Hire to Write a Script of Lolita? We'll start with Adrian Line, an English director who started in commercials and graduated to commercial hits like Flashdance and Fatal Attraction and Indecent Proposal. And by 1994, Line was ready to make a big-budget art film. A very specific big-budget art film. It was Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, the first attempt to adapt the story to the big screen since Stanley Kubrick's version in 1962. In February of 1994, Line wrote a 35-page document he called Preparatory Notes on Nabokov's novel. The document said this, The movie should start in prison, because if the audience understands that Humbert is paying his dues, it may help our case. There's a pretty impressive history of the production of this film chronicled by writer Elizabeth Kay in Esquire magazine in a piece that was advertised on the cover of the issue as Who's Afraid of Lolita? An image of the movie's eventual star, 15-year-old Dominique Swain, licks her pointer finger and looks at the camera, wearing a revealing but period-appropriate blue linen romper. Inside, there's an image of Swain from that same photo shoot, blowing a bubble of bright pink gum with a different ghoulish headline. Lolita Comes Again. Title aside, the piece itself is pretty critical of the whole production, and Kay spent a lot of time on set chronicling it carefully. In the 1990s, in spite of the escalating frank sexuality of popular movies and entertainment, Lolita was not an easy project to get made. But it wasn't because of the Nabokov estate. In fact, Nabokov's son Dimitri was extremely supportive of the project, and by the mid-90s was the author's only remaining living relative. Nabokov's wife and collaborator Vera had passed in 1991. In the 90s, Dimitri said this, I have no doubt that Lolita will be an excellent movie, and I have no doubt that it will find an excellent distributor. Okay, King, stay confident. So Adrian Line has an outline of how he wants the movie to go, and he brings it to a trusted collaborator, Bachelor number 1, James Dearden. Dearden, then 45 years old, specialized in erotic thrillers, penning Fatal Attraction back in the late 80s for Line, and then moving on to write and direct his own movies, which were more erotic thrillers like A Kiss Before Dying and Rogue Trader. Dearden and Lolita were not a fit. So on to Bachelor number 2. 
Harold Pinter, a Nobel Prize-winning British playwright and actor whose work was defined by unpredictable dialogue happening in enclosed spaces. Pinter had also won BAFTAs and had been nominated for Academy Awards for his screenplay adaptations of two different movies that starred Jeremy Irons. There was The French Lieutenant's Wife in 1982 with Meryl Streep and Betrayal in 1983, an adaptation of Pinter's own play. Line rejected his script as well. So on to Bachelor number three, David Mamet. I'm sorry, I'm. if you were to ask me which writer working in 1994 would be the absolute worst to adapt Lolita, David Mamet would be number one. He was very successful, particularly for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, sealing our cultural fate of Alec Baldwin never going away. But by 94, Mamet would have been focused on adapting his play about a female college student filing bogus sexual harassment charges against a professor into a movie. I just... David Mamet adapting Lolita. Mamet is the man that said this in 1993. Women have in men's minds such a low place on the social ladder in this country that it's useless to define yourself in terms of a woman. What men need is men's approval. Mamet did experience a childhood full of violence and trauma as well, and not all his female characters were entirely disenfranchised, so maybe there would have been some ideas in there, but it's just, uh, it's not a fit. Writer Sarah Weinman, who has written about Lolita extensively, and we've talked to in previous episodes on the show, has read the Mamet script and had this to say about it. I was at UT Austin in the Harry Ransom Center for another thing. And I just decided to request the box that mm-hmm. had David Mamet's script of Lolita just to see what that was like. And oh, wait, you got to yeah. read it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. Mamet's total misunderstanding of women and trying to make Humbert into a kind of Glengarry kind of character. And it just, it just didn't work. But um, I'm glad I read it because I was, I was curious. David Mamet adapting Lolita. How dare you? Anyways, the script doesn't work out, and so that's a third strike. Here's Adrian Line giving an interview on the topic in 1998 with a quick recap. In the I beginning, mean, you, you were hired to direct the film. Yes. Um, I actually read the novel about 10 years ago when I was doing Jacob's Ladder, spoke to Mario Cassar, who then was head of Carol Co., that right. was then in business. Right. He bought the rights of it for me on spec. I then worked with four writers. I worked with uh, David Mamet. I worked with Harold Pinter. I worked with James Dearden, <laughs> trying desperately to translate. <laughs> if they can't do it, who can? Well, yeah. there you go. Meanwhile, every woman writer is just is just sitting there. Then we arrive at Bachelor number four, who, of all the bad fits for this project, is the least bad fit. It's Stephen Schiff, a writer for The New Yorker, who had previously been a finalist for the Pulitzer for Film Criticism and had written profiles of Steven Spielberg, Stephen Sondheim, and Edward Gorey, and served as the film reviewer for Fresh Air on NPR before writing the script for Lolita on spec. Schiff said this about the process. From our first meeting, I was very aware of Adrian's fear that the audience would just hate Humbert. The concern was, how do you get the audience, who understands that what he's doing is abhorrent, to view him as someone they want to spend time with? Okay, so now it's time to get our cast together. Of course, we need our Humbert Humbert, the European child sex abuser, who, in adaptations up until this point, has been generally romanticized or made a problematic hero at best and a full-on comedic king singing and dancing at worst. So it's the mid-90s now. Who do we got? 
Line considers Anthony Hopkins, but at 56, Hopkins is a little too old. Then there's Warren Beatty, who's not interested. Dustin Hoffman is briefly linked to the project. Line also considers Hugh Grant, who at 34 and approaching the height of his rom-com fame was said to be a little too young for the part. Per an article in Entertainment Weekly in August 1996, Hugh Grant says this. The trouble is, that's my favorite book of all time, and I didn't want anyone to make a film of it. Hugh Grant loved him in Paddington too. Okay, who's still in the mix? Harold Pinter, who was one of those acclaimed writers whose Lolita line rejected, recommends Jeremy Irons, an actor he's written for with success many times. If you want an actor who isn't afraid of looking bad, Pinter tells Line, get Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons at this time was an English actor who is a little bit older than Nabokov's 37-year-old Humbert Humbert of the book, but is still younger than James Mason's 50-something-year-old Humbert in Kubrick's version. And most importantly, Jeremy Irons was famously not afraid to play a bad guy. In fact, he'd made a career on it and continues to to this day, whether it was his Oscar-nominated performance as murderer Klaus von Bülow in Reversal of Fortune, whether it was his playing twin gynecologists in Dead Ringer, or hell, most famously, Scar in The Lion King. So okay, Line decides he wants Jeremy Irons, but Jeremy Irons needs some convincing. Here is an iconic passage from Elizabeth Kay's piece on how he needed to be convinced by his Reversal of Fortune co-star and leading lady of Adrian Line's fatal attraction, Madame Glenn Close. But Irons didn't want to play Humbert. I played enough weirdos, he told Line. I need this like a hole in the head. Don't be so politically correct. Line said. God, we know where this is heading. The piece continues. Irons' American agent liked the script, but the actor was warned against it by his English agent and everyone else whose opinion he trusted, i.e. the male star's coterie of wife, PR woman, makeup lady. Glenn Close, whose work with Line in Fatal Attraction lent her a change of type that revived her career, told Irons that Line was terribly protective of actors. She also said he shouldn't play Humbert. Word of this reached Line. He was furious. That's a knee-jerk reaction, he thought. He called Glenn Close. Are you saying, he shouted, that I can't even touch this subject? It upsets me, Line recalls her saying in a voice no calmer. I've got a daughter. Perfectly understandable, said Line. I've got two daughters, but the idea that you wouldn't do something, the idea of self-censorship is more sinister than upsetting people. Eventually, the shouting ceased. All the work I'd absolutely decided I shouldn't do, but did, Line recalls Close saying then, worked very well for me. I'm sorry, am I supposed to be rooting for these men to bully the one and only Glenn Close? That's not going to happen. The piece continues. I think she understood, Line would say later, that I really loved the novel. And that if you feel that strongly about a subject, there's a chance of it being half-decent. Glenn Close called Irons again. Remember what we do, she said. We do great roles with great scripts and great directors. And isn't this that? And I'm turning it down, thought Irons, because I'm worried about what it will do to my career? Ludicrous. All right then, he said. Let's be politically incorrect. Let's stir the waters. Yes. Irons recalls Close saying, even though, as the mother of a young girl, I still find it all very difficult. 
Maybe this is not the place nor the podcast to be having this discussion, but Glenn Close deserves an Oscar. So Jeremy Irons is officially Humbert Humbert. Filling out the rest of the cast will be Melanie Griffith as my favorite Charlotte Hayes, Frank Langella in a restrained performance of Claire Quilty that for some reason features full frontal nudity in the last scene, and then, of course, Dolores Hayes needs to be cast. But to be clear, I'm going to be calling her Lolita throughout this episode because, spoiler alert, the character of Dolores Hayes and all the nuance therein does not translate into this movie. We are still very much dealing with the cultural Lolita character here. Again, Stanley Kubrick had more or less set the standard of how Lolita the character had been presented visually up till this time. Nearly all young actresses who had played the part since were dressed and styled nearly identically to the way Sue Lyon was in 1962. Speaking of Sue Lyon, she has this to say when getting wind that there's going to be a new adaptation of Lolita. Quote, My destruction as a person dates from that movie. Lolita exposed me to temptations no girl of that age should undergo. I defy any pretty girl who is rocketed to stardom at 14 in a sex nymphette role to stay on a level path thereafter. Line wants to do things differently. A call for a third wave feminism era Lolita is put out, and per the trades at the time, over 2,500 young actors audition. It's said that Natalie Portman, who had played an abused 12-year-old turned hitman's protege in the 1994 movie Luc Besson's Leon the Professional to critical acclaim, had been offered the part of Lolita. Portman declined. Just a few months ago, a now 39-year-old Portman had this to say about it. I was definitely aware of the fact that, like, I was being portrayed, like, mainly in kind of journalism around when the movies would come out as, like, this, like, Lolita figure and stuff. And yeah, I've actually talked about it. I wrote a thing about it for the Women's March a few years ago about how being sexualized as a child, I think, took away from my own sexuality because it made me afraid. Portman wanted out of the roles where she was characterized as a sexually precocious and consenting underage girl. Characters whose hyper-competence are written to imply that it's okay that adult men treat her as a sexual object. Her decision not to play Lolita makes a lot of sense when you know this. The press and the public had treated her very exploitatively after she starred in The Professional, with many adult men beginning countdowns to Portman's 18th birthday, and she received a number of terrifying rape threats in the mail. Not to mention, the director of The Professional, Luc Besson, was very credibly accused of rape by a number of women in 2018, and it didn't stop him from releasing a movie the next year. Portman played another sexualized adolescent in Ted Demme's 1996 movie, Beautiful Girls, in which she and Timothy Hutton, who is 21 years her senior, flirt knowingly for the entire movie, and Portman's 13-year-old character at one point asks Hutton to wait until she's of age so they can be together, before Hutton acknowledges that that could never be. The movie implies that he needs to grow up. Not that it's disturbing that he considered dating a 13-year-old in the first place. Beautiful Girls was another hit. Portman's history of pushing against the sexualization of young actors and her support of Time's Up is further complicated by the fact that she signed a petition back in 2009 
that demanded the immediate release of director Roman Polanski after he was detained in Switzerland, even though Roman Polanski was being detained because he had pleaded guilty to raping a minor in the U.S. in 1977. Over 100 celebrities signed this petition. And at very least, Portman apologized for this in 2018, saying, quote, I very much regret it, unquote, and, quote, I take responsibility for not thinking about it enough, unquote. But 2009, and we will be talking about this very messy petition later in the episode. I digress. Back to the casting of 1997's title character of Lolita. Other young actors rumored to have been in the running include Christina Ricci, Melissa Joan Hart, and Jennifer Love Hewitt. In the end, the actor selected for the part was Dominique Swain, a 14-year-old raised in Malibu who hadn't auditioned for anything in two years when she was invited to send in a tape for Lolita's title character. Born in 1980, she was bubbly and had braces and was very much a kid of her era. Her favorite actor was Juliette Lewis, and she had never heard of Jeremy Irons until he mentioned that he was the bad guy in The Lion King. Swain says this in the 1997 Esquire piece. But I think he was kind of disappointed that I didn't know any of his serious stuff. When speaking with Elizabeth Kay at age 16, she said that she had wanted to be an actor for the attention. To be in the spotlight and have everyone's eyes on you and have control over the situation. She filmed an audition and a sliver of her everyday life and read the copy of Nabokov's book that her manager gave her. After reading it, she told her manager this. It's all through Humpert's eyes. Lolita doesn't have a point of view. I think I can give her one. Swain has flown out, auditions for Line, and it's a match. He loves her, is very impressed with her performance, and immediately starts to call her My Lolita. Line says this of her in a later interview. Dominic Swain was an, a natural, really. I mean, she'd never acted on any level at all, not even at school. She'd done nothing. And she just... She had less nerves, I would say, than any actor I've ever worked with. And she really kind of played herself. And to his credit, Swain says to this day that Line was very careful and kind with her on set. Here's what she said during the press junket for the movie back in the 90s. I think that Lolita is very similar to myself. And not that we're going through the same circumstances, but that we both react in whatever way seems natural at the moment. Swain and Irons did a chemistry test in 1995 before filming started, which appear as DVD extras and rack up hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube today. In it, Swain is 14 or 15 and in pigtails, barefoot in a light purple tank top and shorts on a dingy gray couch. Jeremy Irons wears a tucked-in blue polo shirt and jeans. They try one of the movie's most difficult scenes, one that ends in Lolita screaming, Murder me. Murder me like you murdered my mother. Line is there and gives Swain advice from the sidelines. Do you hear what I'm saying? I mean, the way I'm reading it now is, is like, I know you're lying through your teeth. Mm-hmm. In other words, I want you to be a better liar. Imagine it's your old man asking you, say, right. you know, when you're... Tell me a few stories. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. If I get like upset, so it's though, be my quicker. parents are like, "You did what?" So I'm just like, "Oh yeah, I was." Well, look, we'll do that. Do that. It should be the whole thing. Should be quicker. Okay. Okay. They try it again. This time, the scene gets physical. You go upstairs. Just go upstairs. Let go of me, you pervert! Get up there! Don't you call me a pervert? Oh. 
That's right. Beast. You filthy foreigner, murder me. Murder me like you murdered my mother. That sound you just heard was Jeremy Irons slapping Dominique Swain for real. The scene ends. Adrian Lyne gets up to give Dominique notes and touches her cheek to make sure she's okay. Irons goes to the other side of the room, and Adrian Lyne shows her the blocking again. Good, good things in there, good things. <laughs> Wrong cheek, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 that, that's good. great. That... Good. Okay. I think you've got to get up, you know what I'm saying? He takes Dominique's arm, shows her where she's supposed to land at the end of a line. She sits listening how Adrian Lyne wants Jeremy Irons to say the word slut and jokes about it before they try the scene again. It sounds better with an English accent. Did <laughs> 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 you try it that way? Madre, pervert! You like that, huh? <laughs> Ah, you're a shriek. Okay, let's go. Now I'm a canardy little <laughs> So they take the scene again. She nails it this time. So much that Jeremy Irons forgets his lines. Adrian Lyne gives Dominique a reassuring hug at the end of the scene. The tape ends with the two <laughs> actors posing for the camera. Jeremy Irons holding her by her arms and giving her a kiss on the back of her head before they set for another take. This tape is from 1995. The times have changed in some ways and very much not in others. Since Kubrick's 1962 adaptation, the Hollywood and global landscape's attitude towards child sex abuse and pop culture's attitudes toward young girls has changed quite a bit. And much of these subtle ways how are captured in Elizabeth Kay's Esquire piece. In one scene where the character of Lolita is nude, a 19-year-old body double is used. When Dominique Swain sits on Jeremy Irons' lap, faking an orgasm while reading a comic book, a scene that does not appear in Nabokov's book, there is a cushion placed between the two of them. Some people in the set feel that this is important to do, while other people roll their eyes at it. Kay writes this in February 97, when the movie, after a series of release issues we will be unpacking in this episode, is finally approaching some level of release. The Western world... Swamped in paranoia and litigiousness, was descending into Bedlam by striving to keep Bedlam at bay. Children were urged to sue their parents. Adults deleted from their behavior the most instinctive gestures. If you need a pull quote that summarizes a popular attitude people had around sexualizing children in the 1990s, characterizing it as a general overreaction, well, there it is. She then quotes Jeremy Irons, who says this, we are bringing up a generation of children who can be touched neither in anger nor in love. <sighs> this is Lolita Podcast. Welcome back to Lolita Podcast. My name is Jamie Loftus, and today we are going to be talking about the most influential contemporary adaptation of Lolita, Adrian Lyne's 1997 movie starring Jeremy Irons and Dominique Swain. 
While this movie never got a full theatrical release in the U.S., lost a boatload of money, and didn't garner any of the shiny trophies it seemed to be after, this movie has endured, for better and for worse. Last week, we talked about its influence on some pop music of the era and beyond, and our entire episode next week will focus on online communities where images and inspiration from the mood, fashion, and aesthetics of this movie are featured heavily. So is it the adaptation the world was waiting for in spite of being controversial for its time? As always, the easiest way to know is to find out how the director feels about the project. What say you, Adrian Line? In the end, it's a love story. It's a strange and awful love story. Oh, I am so sorry, Mr. Line. The answer was literally anything except saying it was a love story. But it's not as simple as movie bad. The reasons it doesn't work, in my opinion, as an adaptation are kind of complicated. It has to do with filmmaking choices, absolutely. But to truly understand the failure slash endurance of this movie, you need to know how the cultural and entertainment landscape shifts in regards to Lolita the image, Dolores the character, and how attitudes on both young women's body and child sex abuse changed between the time of Stanley Kubrick's Lolita in 1962 and when Adrian Lyne's adaptation lurched into a couple of theaters in 1997. So let's go back in time and find out why our parents are so damaged. As much noise was made about at the time, the Hollywood Production Code, or the Hayes Code, was defunct by 1968, setting the movie industry up for a series of shakeups that would give way to a period of gritty, director-driven movie making. The studio system era of American movie making had ended, and the white male auteur canon that we are taught are the modern, still mostly living greats, began to dominate the industry. Stanley Kubrick is one of the elder of these directors, but I'm talking about your Francis Ford Coppola's, your Martin Scorsese's, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Robert Altman, Brian De Palma, Sam Peckinpah, Roman Polanski, and Woody Allen, who released independent hit after independent hit throughout the 1970s. A number of great movies are produced during this period, but it needs be remarked that in spite of the radical changes that this period is hailed with, all of these filmmakers, like their predecessors in Hollywood, are straight white men. So this means, in the general sense, that now many of the taboos that were placed upon film by the Hayes Code have been lifted, meaning, for the purposes of this show, it was suddenly much easier to show both violence against women and to sexualize children. Throughout the 1970s, there are a number of movies that are these weird, unlicensed, sort of kind of adaptations of Nabokov's Lolita in the low-budget movie space. And once television became an accepted and commonplace medium, the volume of this low-budget, half-thought-out production becomes pretty ubiquitous. None of these are really successful enough to harp on, but I have seen them all because this is my life now. And these low-budget sort of Lolita movies are universally aligned with the commercialized Lolita image. In these movies, the underage are very consenting, and it's society that is being weird about the relationship between a nearly 40-year-old man and a teenage girl. And to be clear, these all concern girls of high school age, and none of them concern the 12-year-old that was Dolores Hayes of Nabokov's book. There's movies like Anita, Swedish Nymphette, a 1973 Swedish movie that features it girl Christina Lindbergh as a teenage nymphomaniac whose nymphomania is cured by... Stellan Skarsgård, an older college boy who is nice. Not a good movie, would not recommend. 
There's also a black exploitation movie from 1975 called Black Lolita about a singer who returns to her hometown to fight the gangsters who have taken it over. I tried so hard to find this movie with no luck, but it seems kind of like Charlie's Angelsy and was later renamed Wildcat Women. Don't know. Let me know if you have access to this movie. I would like to see it. But the weirdest one that stood out to me was a B-movie out of England in 1970 called, depending on who you ask, either The London Affair, Twinkie, or Lola, and stars Charles Bronson as an author in his late 30s who marries a 16-year-old British schoolgirl named Twinkie, played by Susan George. The opening scene of Twinkie is about the 16-year-old Twinkie being caught reading a pornographic book by her parents. Cut to this very weird theme song. I never met a girl like this for me Dumb but pretty like a schoolgirl should be Twinkie! I think you're growing up too soon, girl Take a look at her 16 summers and a month or two A grown-up lover when the girls can't see you Twinkie! You've woken up too soon Little did Twinkie's parents know that she is dating Charles Bronson, the 39-year-old author of this erotic novel she's reading, and he's writing about her. This is a comedy, by the way. The movie is god-awful, but it demonstrates just as clearly as the Lolita musical adaptation from 1971 by Alan J. Lerner that it was a profitable decision to frame a 40-year-old willfully committing statutory rape as a comedic hero and the prudish society surrounding him as the villain. There's even a joke about this from Twinkie about how lenient English law was on child sex offenders at this time. That happens right after her parents learn she's having sex with someone their age. What's the age of consent in this country? Sixteen. Sixteen? How do you know? Every girl knows that. Anyway, I already checked with daddy's lawyer. Twinkie jokes that the worst thing that will happen to Charles Bronson is having his driver's license suspended for a year and a 40-pound fine. And in the movie, that's exactly how things play out. I said statutory rape. All right, now they put on trial this uh, nymph fetishist. How did they? Who? Me. Scott, let me try and explain to you about the English law. Now, our case will be heard by one of two judges. I sentence you to have your driving license suspended for one year. You will have your driving license suspended for one year. And fine you the sum of 40 pounds. And you will be fined 40 pounds. And let that be a warning to you. Twinkie and definitely not Humbert's love is played out as very genuine, even if the fact that she is a literal child appears to be very annoying to him. They marry while she's still underage in Scotland and then elope to the U.S., taking Twinkie away from her entire family and everyone she's ever known. Twinkie eventually runs away and leaves him a tearful romantic letter saying it just won't work out at the end of the movie. The promotional poster at the time read, She's almost 16. He's almost 40. It may be love, but it's definitely exhausting. Oh, Scotty. You'll be my mommy and daddy. Sweetheart and teacher. All rolled into one. My super new grandfather. So that's Twinkie. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. 
So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., the gritty white male auteur had completely overtaken Hollywood by the mid-70s, and some major releases of this era feature young girls in highly sexualized roles. Two major examples from this time that are still a part of good movie canon today are Jodie Foster in Martin Scorsese's 1976 movie Taxi Driver, playing a child sex worker named Iris who encounters Robert De Niro's incel king Travis Bickle. There was a fair amount of controversy about Foster's casting. She was only 12 when the movie was shot. Much was made of her character being present during a shootout scene, and the California Labor Board made it required that she be evaluated by a psychologist at UCLA to make sure that she would not be scarred by the experience. According to Foster later in her life, she wasn't scarred by the shootout. What stuck with her was how her character was treated on set saying in later interviews that Scorsese didn't really know how to approach directing her and that she wasn't very comfortable. Instead, Robert De Niro generally prepared her for and guided her through their scenes. And then there was Woody Allen's Manhattan, released in 1979, written, directed, and starring Woody Allen and a teenage Marielle Hemingway, starring as a 17-year-old dating a 42-year-old Woody Allen. As this premise is over and over, this is framed as a rom-com. Woody Allen's friends judge in Nabokovian terms, even. What do you do, Tracy? I go to high school. Oh, really? Really? Somewhere in the back on this one. (laughs) Manhattan was nominated for two Oscars the following year, one for Best Screenplay, and the other was for Mariel Hemingway as Best Supporting Actress. The part she's playing is Tracy, who reassures Alan's character Isaac that things might work out for them, even when they part at the end of the movie. Do you still love me, or what? Do you love me? Yeah, that's what it, Yeah, of course, that's what this is all about. Yeah. Guess what? I turned 18 the other day. I'm legal, but I'm still a kid. You're not such a kid. 18 years old. You know, you can, you can, they could draft you. The girl, Tracy, possesses a wisdom and certainty that I felt when watching the movie for the first time leads us to believe that she's not just able to consent, but she's wiser than an adult woman. Why wouldn't Isaac choose her? 
I don't need to tell you this, but this plotline, praised brilliantly upon its release, could not have aged worse. And it was considered pretty creepy by a small faction of critics way before allegations of Alan's sexual abuse ever even surfaced. Not only did Alan date and marry Sunyi Previn, the daughter of his ex-partner Mia Farrow, Sunyi being a full 35 years his junior, Alan was also accused of molesting his own six-year-old daughter Dylan in 1992. While the courts absolved him, Dylan maintains her truth to this day with the support of her mother and many of her siblings. And on Alan's end, Manhattan being considered his greatest movie and being one that casually permits statutory rape, yeah. But in the late 70s, permitting and romanticizing the relationship between Hemingway and Alan's characters was very okay with most viewers and critics. The movie was a huge hit. In 2015, Marielle Hemingway shared some of her experiences with Woody Allen. She said that less than two weeks after she had turned 18, Allen attempted to convince Hemingway to come to Paris to see him. Hemingway said this, Our relationship was platonic, but I started to see that he had a kind of crush on me, though I dismissed it as the kind of thing that seemed to happen anytime middle-aged men got around young women. Hemingway informed her parents of his request. In 2015, she says that, I didn't know what the arrangement was going to be, that I wasn't sure if I was going to have my own room. Woody hadn't said that. He hadn't even hinted it. But I wanted them to put their foot down. They didn't. They kept lightly encouraging me. Ultimately, Hemingway declined Alan's invitation and was too uncomfortable to meet with him. She said that she realized that no one was going to have their own room. His plan, such as it was, involved being with me. Hemingway says she went into his guest room and woke Alan up, asking, I'm not going to get my own room, am I? I can't go to Paris with you. I would also recommend checking out writer Michael Shulman's guest episode of the You Must Remember This podcast for a close read of Mariel Hemingway and her sister Margot's early years in Hollywood. Hemingway's kiss with Alan on screen in Manhattan was her first kiss ever when filming the movie at age 16. This is something she shared in common with another 70s star who was featured in a very different movie about an underage girl and a relationship with a grown man. I'm talking about an 11-year-old Brooke Shields in a 1978 movie called Pretty Baby. Pretty Baby is one of the few movies that leads up to Lion's Lolita in 1997 that centers nearly its entire plot on child sex abuse in a way that seems conscious of it where the Twinkies and the Manhattans of the world regarded statutory rape as a forbidden love that could be funny, Pretty Baby is about the dangers of child prostitution in many ways. The movie was directed by Louis Maul, written by Polly Platt, and stars a then 11-year-old Brooke Shields as Violet, who was a child sex worker in New Orleans in 1917, living in a brothel. Midway into the movie, her virginity is auctioned off to the highest bidder. Violet is the daughter of a sex worker named Hattie, played by Susan Sarandon, who abandons Violet when she marries a rich man and is able to leave the brothel. Looming over these events is an adult photographer named Bullock, played by Keith Carradine. He becomes Violet's caretaker when she's left by her mother, an arrangement that quickly results in his having sex with and marrying her, all while Violet is only 12. At the end of the movie, prostitution becomes illegal in New Orleans, so Bullock and Violet get married and leave town with a number of other sex workers. Hattie eventually returns to find her daughter with her new husband after a long search, 
terminating the marriage and taking Violet with her to get an education and live a normal life with her new family. So first I wanna touch on Polly Platt, who had built up her career behind the scenes of her then husband, Peter Bogdanovich, in movies like The Last Picture Show and Paper Moon. While she was credited only as a production designer on these movies, it's well documented that she worked more in a producer and collaborative capacity, but was never credited as such. There is an amazing 10-part series on Polly Platt by Karina Longworth from 2020 called Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman, a part of her fabulous show, You Must Remember This, that I highly recommend to learn more because the context of Platt's life and where this movie falls into it is really fascinating. But in short, Pretty Baby was Platt's opportunity to shine. It's her first screenplay credit, and she's credited as an associate producer on the project as well, although, as always, she was doing more behind the scenes. Platt had seen a photo of Brooke Shields modeling in a magazine and cast her with permission from Brooke's mother. Brooke Shields had a very difficult childhood. She had an alcoholic mother who was present during the filming of Pretty Baby and was repeatedly kicked off the set and interfered with her daughter's daily life throughout a shoot with already very delicate material. Shields' mother even sent Polly Platt to the ER after allegedly biting her at a bar and breaking the skin. Shields has chronicled this abuse in her memoirs, particularly the book There Was a Little Girl, The Real Story of My Mother and Me from 2015 as well as by Karina Longworth in her series on Polly Platt. The story behind Shields' life on the set of Pretty Baby alone is deeply complicated, but to summarize, Shields was acting out some very difficult material that requires she appear naked on screen while 11 years old and was dealing with the personal traumas of an alcoholic parent all before her 12th birthday. Here's how Shields reflected on her experience with director Louis Mall in 2014. I had that squeaky, high little kid's voice. I was not uh, Lolita. I was not, uh, I was sweet. And yet um, he said that I, I looked mature, but I was still a very much a little kid. And he said that was, he didn't want a provocative, a, not, a girl cognizant of her sexuality. And that was definitely me. <laughs> Pretty baby is, for my money, not a badly made or written movie. What it is, is a movie that features the nudity of a very young child in a sexual context in a way that is really difficult to watch, even without the behind-the-scenes context of Brooke Shields' life at this time. Sitting from 2021, it is inconceivable that this would or should ever happen in a movie, but at the time, it warranted little more than an R rating. Karina Longworth makes a convincing argument in her series that Polly Platt's script reflected some harsh critiques on how willing Hollywood was to sexualize young girls in the 1970s, as well as some autobiographical references to Platt's own life and anxieties connecting to cycles of abuse concerning mothers and daughters. Come on, Violet. Why aren't you packed? I don't want to go. Violet, I am your mother. No, you're not. You even say so all the time. And on top of seeing an 11-year-old naked at several points in the movie, scenes that would have been illegal to film just 18 years later, we also see her kiss Keith Carradine many, many times. 
even with the maximum amount of onset support that we know was not present on this production, it's beyond no longer considered an appropriate thing to ask of a child performer, period. It was a really difficult watch for me, one made more difficult with the context. Shield reflections on this time in her life are very interesting. Uh, Here's a little more of that interview from 2014 just wants to be taken away and taken care of and loved. And in her world, that's what that was. And that's the way she grew up. What I found most interesting about this interview was that it wasn't the onset experience where Brooke Shields held much trauma. It was her reception in the press. And this is a commonly cited experience from actors who have played Lolita over the years as well. I never once felt taken advantage of or victimized. All of that came after (laughs) in the press. What Pretty Baby has going for it story-wise is that it is invested in the trauma and the impossibility of its protagonist's situation. And I think a lot of that comes down to Polly Platt's writing, as well as the cinematography done by famous Swedish cinematographer Sven Nykvist, who, I thought it was cool, Brooke Shields ends up writing an entire thesis paper about later in her life. What I especially like about Pretty Baby is that many of the critical moments of this movie we see through Violet's eyes via Nyquist's camera. This movie is full of women observing how they're looked at, looking at themselves, looking at each other. And for all the extremely valid criticism there is around how Shields' body is treated, this element of women seeing each other and seeing how men look at them is very unique for its time. Pretty Baby starts with a scene of Violet watching her mother give birth. We see the entire scene where Violet's virginity is auctioned off for $400 through her eyes, and it's not a flattering depiction of the men who are bidding. In Violet's eyes, they are red and bloated and old and leering, and she's scared, and you can tell. (laughs) Hey, how do we know she is a virgin? Have I ever lied to you before? Satisfaction guaranteed. As it relates to Lolita, it struck me in watching this movie how Dolores Hayes' life is full of moments like this, but no adaptation I've seen ever takes the opportunity to show us her predicament through her eyes, to show us how Humbert looks to her, even though you wouldn't need to add a word of dialogue to accomplish this. Violet, like Dolores, is an outspoken 12-year-old trying to navigate her own sexuality and coming of age while in an extremely traumatic and impossible situation. For Dolores, it is being kidnapped and sexually abused by a near stranger. For Violet, it is being made to be a sex worker at 12 whose mother is not able to care for her as she needs to be cared for. Pretty Baby holds a strange, uncomfortable place in movie history, as it was pretty indisputably a source of trauma for its underage actor protagonist. What makes it stand out is that it was a story about child sex abuse, of a girl trying to survive under the most impossible circumstances in a cruel world, and it at least appeared to be aware of and very sympathetic to that. Granted, the ending scene where Violet leaves with her mother after being married to Bullock for two weeks, I think we're supposed to be sad for him. Well, you cannot take her! I can't live without her. That's all. 
But unlike all the movies we've discussed so far today, Pretty Baby was not labeled a story of forbidden love, even though the age gap and power dynamics between Bullock and Violet are very similar to the movies we described earlier. This isn't an accident, partially because Bullock is not our unreliable narrator and we aren't being told the story through his eyes. In this movie, our narrative priority and sympathies lie with Violet. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Polyplat's script has no interest in concealing Violet's trauma from us in the way that Lolita's narrator, the abuser, does. And Belloc, while filling a similar role to Humbert Humbert in Violet's life, in that we're rarely asked to sympathize with him. He appears as a meek, sort of pathetic figure in the story who is played very ambiguously by Keith Carradine. Definitely not a sexy, heroic type. Karina Longworth mentions that this likely would have been different if Polly Platt's top pick for the part, Jack Nicholson, had gotten to play the role. So child sex abuse was frequently brought up in movies of the 70s and 80s, but in the most high-profile productions, it was rarely characterized as something that was too much to worry about. And in fact, most of the children being abused in these films were written to be very knowing and consenting. It says something for this era that Pretty Baby stands out in the crowd in a way that ultimately feels pretty bleak. It's a movie that monetizes the image of a naked child, but unlike most movies we've discussed, it isn't endorsing statutory rape or molestation. Which, if nothing else, demonstrated to me how very much on the floor the bar for talking about child sex abuse in movies was at this time. While Pretty Baby was in production in 1977, 43-year-old director Roman Polanski was arrested on six charges involving drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl named Samantha June Gailey, or Samantha Geimer. I'm about to discuss the details of what happened, including a description from Geimer herself 40 years later, so a heavy content warning going into this section. Fast forward three minutes if it's not something you're in a place to hear about. The charges against him were this, rape by use of drugs, 
perversion, sodomy, a lewd and lascivious act upon a child under 14, unlawful sexual intercourse with a female under the age of 18, and furnishing a controlled substance to a minor. You may know of this story already. Polanski was famous for movies like Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown at this time, and had faced the tragedy of his pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, being brutally murdered by the Manson family in the late 1960s. In March 1977, Polanski took child model Samantha Geimer to do a private photo shoot that he claimed would be featured in French Vogue. Her mother asked to be present, but Polanski said no, and she eventually allowed it. At their second photo shoot, Polanski brought Geimer to Jack Nicholson's Mulholland Drive mansion while he was away on a ski trip. Polanski gave Geimer a quaalude and champagne, then raped her repeatedly. She discussed this in 2019 on 60 Minutes. Yeah, when he wanted to get into jacuzzi, I knew I was in trouble. Like, wait, this is not what he's supposed to be doing. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew whatever was on his mind was not a good thing. You know, Roman's fame at that time, he was very powerful, very well-known. I think when you're wealthy or powerful or well-known, people don't say no to you, and you, you have like this different view of life where you're accustomed to getting what you want. We're going into this dark room together. Um, but you know, he wasn't f forceful, and I was scared and confused and high, and so I just kind of didn't really know how to resist that besides say, I'd rather not know, and then when that didn't change his mind, I just didn't know what else to do. I was unprepared. Polanski pleaded guilty to engaging in intercourse with a minor, spent only 42 days in prison for violating his parole, and then fled the country, and he's never returned to this day, all while continuing to work relatively uninterrupted. He has been a convicted sex offender since the late 1970s and won an Oscar for Best Director in 2002. This is a very complicated story, and I will link additional resources in the description, but make no mistake, Polanski clearly did not anticipate any consequences for raping a child, and was outraged that any materialized. He admitted it, and it didn't stop him from working in film relatively free of stigma up until very recently. I'll refer back to that 2009 petition to release Polanski that Natalie Portman signed, along with 100 other prominent celebrities, such as, brace yourself, David Lynch, Martin Scorsese, Darren Aronofsky, Asia Argento, Wes Anderson, Terry Gilliam, Alejandro Inaratu, Tilda Swinton, that one hurts, and as you could guess, Woody Allen. The same Woody Allen who is defended by several high-profile celebrities to this day. Oh yeah, and you know who else signed this damn thing? Jeremy motherfucking Irons. He is, <laughs> we're gonna talk about his track record in part two of this episode, but for an actor who played the world's most famous fictional child sex abuser, boy does he defend Roman Polanski, an actual child sex abuser, a lot. Portman is, to her credit, one of the only celebrities who has publicly withdrawn support of the 2009 petition. Even though the celebrities I listed were reached out to withdraw their support in 2018 after the start of the Me Too movement. So, regrets to Tilda Swinton fans there. I'll remind you here that child sex abuse in Hollywood 
was nothing new in the 1970s. It was a problem as old as the industry itself, beginning with lecherous studio heads preying on underage stars and high-profile cases like Charlie Chaplin's. And while there were always vocal critics of those who continued to work with Allen and Polanski, it certainly wasn't enough people to prevent these men from remaining extremely successful after child sex abuse allegations surfaced. Roman Polanski, as I said, won an Oscar in 2002. Woody Allen was nominated for an Oscar as recently as 2013. I can't separate art from the artist here, and if you can, please don't email me about it. I just, I have too many ex-boyfriends who have just waxed poetic about how am I going to watch Annie Hall now? And it's like, I really don't care. I really don't care. Don't email me about it. Thank you. Whew. Okay, let's get out of the 1970s immediately. Meanwhile, outside of the entertainment sphere, the 80s happen, and a strange but persistent friction develops. There is now a prevalent cultural fear of children being kidnapped and murdered. A lot of this is connected to the Milk Carton Kids campaign, which began in 1984 as a part of a campaign run by the National Child Safety Council that sought to bring images of missing children to the breakfast tables of other families, both as a public service message and, arguably, a veiled warning that if you're not careful, this could happen to you. A police commander from Chicago told the Associated Press about the program back in 1985. Their faces will be there at the breakfast table. People will have to think about it. The Milk Carton Kids comprise some of the most memorable child abduction cases of the century, and ones that there were an incredible amount of national and global attention on. Each and every one of these cases were deeply tragic and very upsetting, as well as demonstrating a pattern on the press's part to repeatedly spotlight the exact same type of crime. That being the abduction of a middle-class or upper-middle-class white child by a stranger. Now granted, both the Milk Carton campaign and the Amber Alert system that's still in place today have a pretty high success rate, and it's starting with the Milk Cartons of the 1980s that child sex abuse and abduction enters into the daily lives and thoughts of both parents and children. Consider the Eton Pats case in 1979, the original Milk Carton kid who was abducted and killed at age six at a Manhattan school bus stop. Consider Johnny Gosh, a 12-year-old from Iowa from 1982, or 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling being abducted and murdered in 1989 on his way home from a video store. A number of young girls were also abducted, sexually abused, and sometimes murdered, now covered in the early years of the 24-hour news cycle. There's J.C. Dugard, who was abducted in 1991 at age 11 and was held hostage for 18 years by a convicted sex offender. Polly Klass, who was kidnapped and murdered from her own sleepover at age 12 in 1993. These stories were terrifying, highly publicized, and overwhelmingly featured young white children being abducted by strangers from middle-class or affluent neighborhoods. It's a period in history and in media that, in many ways, is still with us. You might recognize some of the names of these victims because of the extreme uptick in true crime media from the past 10 years. 
And with this elevated press surrounding these types of crimes came stranger danger programs, ones that most of us probably remember from school. These were publicly funded campaigns that warned children not to trust adults they don't know. These types of PSAs existed before the 1980s, but with the milk carton kids come a swift hike in this kind of education becoming common in schools. Here's a bit of one of the more popular stranger danger PSAs of the 1980s. You've taught your children to be polite and friendly, but have you taught them when not to be? Hi there. Do you live around here? Uh-huh. You going to school? Yes. Well, uh, I, I could give you a ride. Last year, 50,000 children disappeared many of them from nice, safe neighborhoods. It's okay. Come on, help me. Talk to your children about not talking to strangers and do it today. A message for your child's safety from the American Medical Association. And I'll let you interpret the extremely loaded phrase, quote unquote, nice neighborhoods for yourself. The primary concern that stranger danger campaigns were trying to combat was child sexual abuse, but always centered the safety of white and financially secure children. The framing of this issue during this time arguably led to an uptick in mass incarceration in the U.S., and I'm going to link some resources in the description of where this public discourse led down the line. Not to mention, this campaign is going on in the midst of the Reagan administration refusing to address the escalating AIDS crisis, and American homophobia is at an all-time high. There is a lot of American prejudice cooked into these innocuous-seeming PSAs. And all this was done while ignoring the fact that the danger that strangers posed may not be as significant as it was implied. Let me explain. That's not to say that strangers do not pose a danger to children. In many cases, they very much have. But what's missing from this conversation, particularly at this time, is the possibility that abuse and mistreatment could be committed by someone a child knows already. And that's a very important fact to leave out. RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, indicates that only 7% of reported abuse inflicted upon children come from complete strangers. The other 93% comes from a person already known to the child. So, these programs, while well-intentioned, were seeking to resolve a problem that was far less common than the Stranger Danger videos were indicating. Maybe you remember these types of programs from when you were a kid. One of my earliest earthly memories was of one of these Stranger Danger songs. Uh, it was on a Barney VHS tape. You know, the gigantic purple dinosaur that my generation carries the psychic weight of on our backs every day. Never talk to strangers, that's very good advice. Cause you just can't tell if they're good or bad, even though they may seem nice. Even though they may seem nice. Viewing Lolita, or Dolores Hayes, in the context of this stranger danger era is infinitely frustrating. Because again, I feel that Nabokov had a stronger grip on the more common scenario that leads to repeated child sexual abuse than American legislators did over 30 years after its publication in 1955. Dolores Hayes belongs very firmly to that group of children, that 93% who are abused by a person who is known to them. Humbert Humbert was well known to Dolores Hayes before the abuse began. He had groomed her. He had worked his way into her family through lies, gaslighting, and violence. 
this, by far, is the most common scenario. So there's a lot of fear around protecting children at this time, but in these same years, the culture's willingness to sexualize adolescents continues to ascend more or less uninterrupted. And yes, it leads us right back to another disservice of Dolores Hayes. Come back for part two of this episode, which we will be releasing in two days. Sorry, things are too fucked up for one episode. Lolita Podcast is an iHeartRadio production. It is written and hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. It is produced by Sophie Lichterman, Beth Ann Macaluso, Miles Gray, and Jack O'Brien. It is edited by the wonderful Isaac Taylor. Music is from Zoe Blade. Theme is from Brad Dickert. And my guest voices this week are Sophie Lichterman, Miles Gray, Isaac Taylor, and Julia Clare. See you next time. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.